Hello, and welcome to Three Levels of Stress, the latest episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. My name is Max Rudolph, and I'm joined today, as always, by Dave Ingram. It's important to use consistent terminology with stakeholders to ensure the meaning is understood. In today's podcast, Dave shares how he has worked with insurers to develop three levels of stress that can be managed and communicated. We discuss how this was incorporated into a professional standard and how to reinvent heat maps to be more useful to practitioners. Please note, as always, that our offerings are educational and not investment advice. Now on to our show. people are uncomfortable with doing stress testing. There are no clear standards of how bad a stress test needs to be. That makes stress testing seem dangerous. The danger is that they would do a stress test and later learn that they were much harder on themselves than another company. And that could lead an observer to wrongly conclude that their company, with the most severe stress test, is the weakest, when no such thing is necessarily true. Stress testing just seems to be too open-ended and undefined. A common language about stress testing needs to be developed and used to help prevent this from happening. But that's difficult. It's difficult because there is not one definition of stress that fits what everyone wants. Regulators seem to be the most focused on company failure and they are therefore most interested in extreme loss situations that might not have any realistic likelihood of ever happening. On the other hand, management is often focused on things that might challenge earnings in the short term. While the board needs to be looking beyond the likely tenure of current management to assess the long-term viability of the firm. To deal with these conflicting objectives, stress testing needs to include several different levels of stresses. Let's look at three levels. The first, normal variability. Stresses are based upon events that might result in the worst year in a normal five or 10 year period. The second we'll call realistic disaster. That's the worst experience that is reasonably expected over a long period of time as the stress event. To put that on a human scale, let's look at something like a 40 year time period, the length of a single person's career. And then the third level of stress we'll call a worst case, a maximum plausible loss that could occur even if you believe that likelihood is extremely remote. This might be significantly worse than the realistic disaster. As you might imagine, management will be able to use the normal volatility stress test for their earnings risk management focus. The board can work with a realistic disaster when they are looking to assess the long-term viability of the company and the regulator can assess company failure risk from the worst case scenario. If you wanted to apply this approach, for example, to equity risk, the normal volatility stress would be something like a 7% drop in the market. Over the past 50 years, 7% has been a 10-year worst case about half the time. For a realistic disaster, you might choose a market drop of 25%. In fact, 26.5 was the worst market drop in 49 of the past 50 years. And then for the worst case scenario, a market drop of 50% could be used. 
That's intra-year drop in the market in 2009. These three levels of adversity would be handled differently by a risk management framework. The company could target handling normal volatility via a risk control cycle process and the breakthrough losses kept to amounts that can be absorbed into earnings. Realistic disasters will sometimes be large enough that they cannot be absorbed into earnings, but must be absorbed through capital. These stresses then become the focus of capital management and capital adequacy assessment. They are considered to be remote but plausible adverse events. The products or other activities that are most associated with these scenarios would then be thought of as driving the need for the risk capital buffer of the company. Worst case scenarios are sometimes quite large, but are also highly unlikely. It is very difficult for a management team to focus on such events. These scenarios are tested primarily out of curiosity, and the test results may or may not drive any risk management actions because they are so remote. But since regulators do want to look at those types of scenarios, they can get a sense of which types of events would drive an industry-wide problem or a problem for a single company that has a higher exposure or vulnerability to a particular worst-case scenario. Of course, to get the best information about these types of situations, the regulator would be best served by asking all insurers to look at their potential losses under the same worst-case scenarios. Unfortunately, regulators themselves do not yet seem to have had this insight. This approach to stress testing can be applied to all of your significant risks, and if applied year after year, can add a layer of comparability both between risks and between years for a company. And if this three-tiered approach is adopted by multiple companies, stress testing can start to be developed towards intercompany comparability because we're all using the same language. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about ARM's ERM advisory services. Our ERM advisory team, led by Dave Ingram and myself, Max Rudolph, are available to provide a wide range of support to your enterprise risk management program. Here are samples of recent projects. The new strategies and risk solutions for executives series of newsletters, webcasts, and discussions is our latest offering. A full range of topics are also available for presentation in person, live via webcast, or delivered as a recording for general staff education on ERM, advanced training for risk management staff, or to provide background on risk management to executives and board members. You can even mix and match, reserving us for a day or more with time split between education and risk discussions. Our ERM team has worked with insurers to install new ERM programs and revitalize older programs that have fallen into disuse. The ERM programs are designed to be consistent with regulatory and rating agency expectations, aligned with company strategy and culture, and bring real value to company management and your board.
Dave, can you start out by telling us how or why you picked these three levels? I guess the story of of how I picked started doing this and pay, was and and Max, you were you were involved in this. We were working for the Academy of Actuaries, developing the the actuarial standards for uh, what we came to call a capital adequacy assessment instead of an ORSA. Uh, one of the one of the members of the group said, "Well, what happens if uh, you have a company that decides to just not assess themselves very?" Uh, with very adverse scenarios. We, we saw that as a problem, and we thought coming up with some terminology like this uh, would help the regulators and, and would help companies to be able to communicate uh, as, as to how consistent they were in their scenarios. So that if, if somebody tells you that, well, I, I've done a realistic disaster scenario, you know, in the example I use, my realistic disaster for my stock portfolio is 5% loss, it's it's pretty easy to to look around and say, nah, that's that's probably not a realistic disaster. Maybe you ought to try and do that again. Have you ever used this uh, approach uh, with an insurer, and and how did it work out? Lots, lots. Um, I, I I've worked on about twenty horses that were submitted to regulators, and uh, we always use this approach in all twenty of those. And uh, so the interesting feedback to me is I've never gotten a question about it, nor have my, you know, my, my uh, clients gotten a question about, about this approach so that it's, it's, it's been just accepted without comment by the regulators. Neither have I gotten a question from any of the, the clients. When, when we use this approach, everybody seemed to just feel comfortable with, with that terminology and, and, and seemed to, if they, if they, didn't understand. They never mentioned it. Well, I remember when, when we first started talking about it with the ASOP, we were having a discussion about how to call these different things. And, and then you came up with, with this and shared it. And, you know, the discussion just went really smoothly after that because it, it was fairly natural. And, and it was one of those where you don't think of it until somebody else thinks of it. And then it, it just makes sense. And, and and we and we did wind up putting something along not this exact terminology but but the, the, the same exact idea in, into the the actual standard of practice so if if you're working on this with a with a company the standard of practice suggests suggests that you use something like this right so so the most interesting uh term that you used is is worst case so does does worst case really mean worst case now that's a that that's definitely an actuarial question. I've only ever gotten that question from actuaries, and and most actuaries that I've worked with on this have asked that question. No, it, it does not mean worst case. Whatever you come up with is the worst case. You know, just like the elementary school kids, whatever number you come up with, I can come up with one larger. There, there, there's always a worse case than whatever, but I I just called it worst case because it, it's the way the the regulators think. That if if you tell them you're showing them a worst case, they look at that and they they nod their heads and then, and then they go away. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. You just shared an example about equity risk a few minutes ago, uh, Dave. Can you give us another example? Sure, I'll, I'll give an example that should resonate with absolutely everybody that hears this, which is related to pandemic. Uh, so if you think of a uh, normal volatility. Uh, scenario for a, a pandemic, you would get uh, a bad flu season, uh, you know, because that's supposed to be like a worst in 
in in 10 years or so uh, a bad flu season there where you'd have uh, more illnesses uh you know s some more deaths but a very small number uh and and that, that would be your normal volatility scenario uh a um and this might be controversial with some folks, but I, I would consider what we've experienced with COVID uh, to be a realistic disaster scenario. Uh, and and uh, just comparing that to, to what uh, other historical uh, disease scenarios have been, uh, the the actual COVID experience was was fairly mild. Some of that because of our advanced capabilities to respond in terms of you know how quickly we were able to get a a very effective vaccine out uh but uh but also in, in terms of the actual underlying severity of, of the uh, covid 19 virus uh was was something in the uh uh lower end of of uh major pandemics and and then a a uh a worst case scenario I would I would put that uh, something worse than the 1918 pandemic, perhaps, uh, so that uh, you you had uh, quite a lot of people infected and uh, many many deaths and and quite a lot of uh, economic activity uh, uh, halted because of the the severity of of the disease and, and the uh, you know if, if we think that. Uh, the lockdowns were were destructive economically under COVID nineteen. If if you had a, a much more severe uh, pandemic that was causing major illnesses and, and many more deaths, uh, the reaction to the lockdown would be probably more, much significantly uh, more intense and and would would cause more uh, economic problems. So. Uh, that would be that scenario would be to to have uh, not just the the very temporary dip in economic activity that we saw uh, with COVID nineteen, but something that lasted uh, you know a year or more in terms of the economic impact of the of the pandemic. Right, that's that's an interesting response. Huh? How would you use this idea when constructing a heat map? My heat map would look different <laughs> than the heat maps that that people are, are used to looking at. And in the, the, uh, the usual looking heat maps are, kind of look like a scatter diagram uh, because there's points all over the place. In a heat map that was constructed using this idea, uh, the uh, each risk would have uh, a dot in e each of three different rows of of the heat map and 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 the the dots then would be in a line across the heat map so that if you had uh frequency uh on on the um on the vertical axis and severity on the horizontal axis you you would have uh the low frequency events the normal volatility in the bottom row and you'd have a string of of dots representing all the risks that you evaluated there and, and showing which one has the, the highest normal volatility effect, which one has the lowest and which ones are, are in the middle and whether they're clumped towards the high end or towards the low end. Uh, and, and, and the same kind of thing, you'd have a row of dots in the middle of the, of the chart uh, where uh, that's your realistic disaster row and you'd see uh, 
whether or not there was any shift, uh, and there should be a, a shift in terms of severity, should be quite significant shift to severity, uh, and, and but whether any of the dots shifted more than what the bulk of them did, you know, may, maybe uh, if you think of it in terms of uh, normal uh, distribution to st- statistics, the normal volatility might be one standard deviation, the realistic disaster might be two standard deviations. And, and so that would suggest everything's shifting the same. But if there are, are any risks that have a fatter tail than a normal distribution, that would shift more than uh, the, the doubling effect that you would see uh, with with the uh, uh, with that sort of normal distribution estimation. And then uh, on, on the top row, again, you'd have a row of dots, which would be uh, perhaps uh, most likely significantly to the right of, of a lot of the dots that, that you had below uh, for the worst case scenarios. And, uh, and, and there you should see some of the, uh, of the um, risks definitely having a, a shift because those are risks with a, uh, when you get out into those worst case scenarios, you, you probably have some that have much fatter tails. I love to hear Dave's practical ideas about risk management. From a working definition of realistic disaster and worst case to dealing with fat-tailed distributions, developing a plan to manage levels of stress can lead to better outcomes and improved levels of communications with stakeholders like investors, rating agencies, and regulators. We hope that you have found this episode of Crossing Thin Ice, presented by Actuarial Risk Management, valuable. Please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. We look forward to visiting with you again. Mm